Well, good morning, Gateway. It's good to be together on a wonderful Sunday morning where we can be reminded of who God is and what he does in our life, where we can sing this wonderful songs that he is king that reigns forevermore, especially in the world that we live in today of uh, turmoil and tendencies of war. We find that God is reigning on his throne. If you have your Bible open with me to Psalm 47, we're going to be reading Psalm 47 verses 1 through 9. And this is a psalm of adoration and praise. Uh, In the book one of the psalms, which ends in Psalm 41, it's a book of laments where the author is constantly crying out, Lord, where are you? Will you please heal me, forgive me? Would you rescue me? And here in Psalm 47, we find a psalm of praise and worship. So let's read Psalm 47. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. He is a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises, for God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Father, we're grateful to you for your word. And this morning you're reminding us that you are king, that you are reigning. May this psalm encourage our hearts. May it build greater faith in us as we look to your word and as we behold your glory, Lord, and we pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you heard, but this past Friday night was a night full of praise and worship. Thousands of people were gathered on opposite sides of the country, They were shouting and clapping, rejoicing and singing. They were glued to their seat at times, and at times they were jumping for joy. But the interesting thing is that this night of praise and worship was not what you would typically expect of a night of praise and worship. People were not gathered in a church building. They were not singing worship songs or clapping and rejoicing in the Lord. They were shouting and clapping, rejoicing and chanting for their home teams, either the Boston Celtics or the Golden State Warriors. You see, this past Friday night was game four of the NBA Finals. If the Warriors lost, they would be down 3-1 and most likely lose the series. But if they won, they would tie it up 2-2 and go back home with home court advantage, and that's exactly what happened. And the crowd was electric both at Chase and at the TD Garden. People were, uh, the stakes were high and people were worshiping. We live in a world of praise and worship, and this is done daily. People praising their favorite sports teams, praising their spouses with a compliment, praising the car that they just bought and all the additions that they made on it and sharing it with others, praising a beautiful mountain range or the sunset that they saw at the beach. And our culture is consumed with praise and worship. Whether they are believers or unbelievers, they're always praising something. Now, we call them fans or followers who do not stop talking about their favorite singer or actor or sports player. They post these people on their walls, they listen to them on their podcasts, and they give them time and energy. 
Now, we typically don't think of worship in this way. It's not the conventional way, but it really is. You see, worship is to ascribe worth to an object, therefore giving that object your time, your talents, and your treasures. And when people are doing so, they are then followers, they're speaking of it, of their favorite singer, actor, or sports player. And the reason why this world is full of worshipers is because God has created to worship, has he not? We are created to adore and treasure God. But as we read in Romans 1, people neglected the glory of God and exchanged it for the glory of created things. See, we were created to value God above all else that is valuable, to love God above all else that is lovely, to savor God above all else that is sweet, admire him above anything else that's admirable, fear God above all else that is fearful, respect God above all else that is respectable, prize God above all else that is precious. And therefore, worship is not a gathering, although worship can happen at a gathering like this morning. Worship is not essentially a song or sitting under preaching, although worship can happening through singing and listening to God's word. Worship is not essentially any form of outward act, but it's the inner stirring of the heart to treasure God above all things. Now, I want to give you a couple definitions, one from Piper, one from D.A. Carson. Piper writes this, the essence of worship is not external, localized acts, but inward, Godward experience that comes out not primarily in church services, though they are important, but primarily in daily expressions of our allegiance to God. Right? We are a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1, and we're our allegiance to God, which is then visible in the way that we handle our money, our sex life, or keep your marriage vows or speak up for Christ. Now, D.A. Carson adds and says that worship is the proper response of all moral beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator because he is worthy. Such worship, therefore, manifests itself both in adoration and action. We have to have both both in individual believers and corporate worship, which is worship offered in the context of the body of believers. And so therefore, I want to argue this morning that the greatest responsibility that we have in our Christian life is the battle for our heart. What are we worshiping? What is the object of our talents, our time, and our treasure? And this is what the sons of Korah in this psalm are turning our attention to. They're calling us to praise and worship God. They're saying, clap all your hands, shout to God with loud songs of joy and sing praises to God, which is mentioned five times. And they give us two reasons that we find here, which is going to be the outline of this psalm. We worship God for who he is, and we worship God for what he does and is doing. Now, this is a typical outline of many psalms, because the psalms were to call to the attention of the hearers and the singers about who God is and what he has done. And specifically here, God is portrayed as king. He, in the verse 2, is the Lord, the Most High, who is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And what has he done? In verses 3 and 4, he subdued people under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage. And he, in verse 8, he reigns and sits on his holy throne. And so I want to call you this morning with this proposition that you will find in your flyers. Remember the goodness, which is the person of God, and the greatness, which is the work of God, for overflowing worship. If we want worship to be a constant lifestyle that we live from morning to evening, from Sunday to Saturday, 
we need to constantly be reminded of the person of God, his goodness, and the greatness of God, his work. And therefore, in this psalm, this is what we're going to see, and we're going to take each of these points one by one. And so the title of the message is, We Praise Because He Reigns. And so here, the psalm, the way it's laid out, is a call to worship, and then an explanation, this is who God is, and then this is what he's done. And then again, a call to worship, this is who God is, and this is what he's done. And so that is what we're going to look at this morning. The very first point is a question. And the question is this, what do remembrance and worship have in common? Remembrance and worship. How are these two at all related? What does remembrance have to do with worship in our life? Because without remembrance, there is no worship. You think of all of the psalms that we read, they are psalms about who God is and what he's done. Singing is a way that God has given us to remember, to praise and adore him. We can look back in the Old Testament and we find a couple illustrations of this. We go to Exodus 15, and what we find is after Israel crossed the Red Sea, they sang. They wrote this, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. And we have another illustration found in 1 Samuel 2 of Hannah. If you remember her song of worship after the Lord opened her womb, she writes, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now, what do you find in both of these songs? They are speaking about who God is and what God is doing. And so the psalmist, they gather the history of God's people. They take themes like God's covenant love, the person of God, creation and fall, and they take them and they put them together into a song to remind us of the person and the work of God. That is what Psalm 47 is doing for us this morning. It's enabling us to admire his attributes and his deeds. Now, continuing when we think about remembering, we think about the festivals that God gave to the people of Israel. Why did God give them festivals? It's so that they would not forget. And Israel celebrated these festivals every single year. The purpose is that they would recall something that God had done in the past to them or for them. They would remember and it would remind them and call them and draw out worship in their life. We do similar things, birthdays or anniversaries. We think about how God has been faithful to us, how he's carried us through 5, 10, 15, 30 years of marriage. And so the Passover, the festival of the Passover, the feast was a remembering of God's deliverance from Egypt that they would remember their deliverance from bondage. The unleavened bread, it was a remembering of their deliverance from Egypt and that Israel was to preserve their health by removing corruption from their lives. The first fruits, which is our sort of thanksgiving, was a remembering the first grain and barley. They would acknowledge that God has been providing for them. The feast of the booths or tabernacles, it was a recalling of the time that God led them through the wilderness and how he provided for them and how they were intense. And they would recall how the Lord had freed them. 
You see, these are festivals that God instituted into the lives of the people of Israel so that they would be a worshiping people. And what do we know happens or happened to them when they would forget? They went through the cycle of judges. They forgot the Lord. He led them into captivity. They cried out to God. God freed them. They were worshiping God. They forgot the Lord. God sent them into captivity. They called out to the Lord. God freed them. Where did it begin? Where was the mistake? It was from forgetting. And we have these festivals today, but we call them holidays. They point us back to a time in history, and we're going to celebrate one soon, which is the 4th of July, Independence Day. There's also President's Day and Memorial Day. All those who lay down their lives so that we would have the freedom that we have today. Labor Day. All these are days are a sign that point back to a time in history so we do not forget. And in this psalm, some say that this psalm was sung at the beginning of the year at the Festival of Shelters, reminding the people of Israel that God is the supreme ruler, that the Lord is the king of all nations. And so remembering is foundational, specifically foundational to worship, remembering who God is. Here we read again, the Lord, the most highest to be feared, he is a great king over all the earth. God reigns over the nations. The context or historical context of the psalm is most likely the night when 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed by the angel of the Lord, when God was the one who brought victory to the people. And so Israel is proclaiming to the surrounding Gentiles, the Lord is the one who gives victory. And they didn't even have to fight the battle. Speaking on remembrance, John Stott writes this, all true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture arises from our reflection, meditation, remembering on who he is and what he has done. Worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. The true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship. I have to pause here and go back to moments in my life, and specifically a time, I believe it was the late 2000s, when we were at the Resolved Conference, and Steve Lawson was preaching a sermon on Colossians 1 on the glory of Christ from verse 15 and onward. And did you know how long he preached? And thousands of teenagers and young adults were sitting there. One and a half hours. And after he was done displaying and speaking on the glory of Christ, we sang one song. And I left. We went back to our home that we were renting. That was the last session. And I just wanted to sing all night. <laughs> I just wanted to worship God because I just was, was set before me was this vision of a glorious Christ. And that stirred my heart and it caused me to remember who Christ was and what he had done in my life. It causes us to worship. And so what happens when we forget? Well, when we forget that God is king, we become weary, tired. Like we already spoke Israel, they turned to idols or other gods, but Let's look at the New Testament, because that's a bit closer to us. We think of the church of, at Ephesus, they lost their first love. Or Corinth, they were living a licentious life. Or Galatians, they were going back to the law. The missing element was remembering. Ephesus, they forgot their first love. Corinth forgot that they're united to Christ, therefore Paul makes such a huge emphasis. Remember that you're united to him. Galatians forgot what Christ had accomplished on their behalf, 
Therefore, they were going back to the law. Now, you would say, well, did they really forget? And the reality is this. It's not that they necessarily forgot. It's that they didn't meditate on it. It wasn't on the forefront of their minds. It wasn't like a billboard that was placarded to them was the glorious Christ. Remembrance, in biblical words, is to meditate, to know, to lay something upon the heart, and to not forget. And so we see here how remembrance is foundational for worship. Remembrance is the first step for us to worship the Lord. And so the psalmist begins with the call to worship. He says, clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. And he's going to tell them why. So they, they would remember who God is and what he has done. After the first book of the Psalms of Lament, we come to a psalm of worship and adoration. And so, having seen remembrance and how remembrance and worship fit together, what are we to remember specifically in this psalm? What is going to cause us to worship? Well, let's look at our second point here. We remember who God is. We remember who He is. We remember God's goodness. And this we will find in verses 2 and also verses 5, 6, and 7. We remember who He is. This theme of kingship is the main theme that we find in the psalm, and this is the description of God. He is, as it says in the psalm, the Lord the Most High, a great king over all the earth. He is one who has gone up with a shout, and he reigns over the nations and sits on his holy throne. We would probably say, if we were studying theology, this is the sovereignty of God, that there is none like the Lord. He is one and only there's no one compared to him. You see, all of life begins and ends with who God is. A few weeks ago, Pastor Rod said, one of the oftentimes quoted, uh, quoted quotes, that the most important thing about us when we think of God, uh, what the most important thing about us is what we think of when we hear the word God. Because who we understand God to be will determine how we treat him, or in other words, will determine how we react to him, will determine what kind of relationship we will have with him. And we get this idea from the Gospel of John, isn't that correct? Where we see the people who are following Jesus, and some see Jesus as just a healer, and he can just make bread, and so they follow him, and they perceive him a certain way, and they treat him like that. They just want to get something from Jesus. The Pharisees, on the other hand, see Jesus as someone who is a traitor, as someone who is bringing false teaching. And what are they wanting to do? The way they perceive him is now they're going to act towards him as they want to crucify him. And there's people who perceive Christ in the right light, and then they treat him like he is the Son of God. We constantly need to keep God in clear focus in our life, balancing, balancing properly all his attributes, justice with patience, Wrath with graciousness, omnipotence with humility, long-suffering with faithfulness. And what we see here in verse 2, the reason why verse 1 and verse 3 and 4 exist is because of who God is. In verse 2, because he is the Lord Most High, a great king, therefore he subdues people in verse 3, and therefore he chooses heritage for us. But also, it is because who God, who God is is why we worship in verse 1. So everything flows out of who God is. Because then he, what he does and the call to worship ebb and flow out of the person of God. 
So who is he? We see two titles in verse 2. He is the Lord Most High. And this title is used 21 times in the Psalms. It describes Yahweh as the greatest and most powerful of all gods. You can always, we can also translate it as God who is above all gods or God who is greater than all others. There's none who compares to him. He is in the league of his own. You see, all the gods of this earth are false, weak, or sleeping. As we remember in the story of Elijah, and we have a, a little picture storybook for the children called the God Contest. And the God Contest is a story about who really is God? Who's going to win the God Contest? And it is Elijah and the prophets of Baal on the mountain. And the goal is, who is the true God? Let's figure this out once and for all. And so the Baal worshipers are calling out to their God. And then Elijah looks over and says, you sure he's doing all right over there? He might be sleeping. (laughs) And then Elijah, they dig out a, a trench around the altar. They pour water over Uh, in in the trench, they pour water all over the rocks and on the sacrifice and he cries out to God and God comes down and the fire comes down and God is truly God. There's none like him. And therefore, the natural reaction at the end of verse 2 is he is to be feared. The Lord, the Most High, he is to be feared. He is to be revered. Or in other words, show reverence to the Lord, the Most High, because he alone is God He is awesome in majesty. He's the only one who works wonders, and there's nobody like him, and you can't compare him. And this is why I so much love Isaiah chapter 40 to chapter 66. I love going back and reading those chapters because they speak about the Lord as he is the only one. He is sovereign. He is ruling. None can compare with him. You see, you don't stand before a roaring lion on the safari and not fear. You don't stand on the edge of half dome and not be in awe. You don't stand next to 13,800 volts on the local power line and not be careful how you work. You see, all those are illustrations of what it means to fear something, to revere something. There's awe. There's a certain carefulness to it. We must be in awe because God alone is the Lord. And second term that's used here, he's a great king. He's a great king over all the earth. That's the extent of his rulership. In verse 2 and verse 7, it says the same thing. God is the greatest chief in the world. He's a supreme ruler. He rules above everything. And nothing is outside of his rulership. And in verse 5, we see not only the extent of his rulership, but the coronation. What would happen when a king would be coronated is that there would be loud sounds of a trumpet, and this is what we read in verse 5. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. He is crowned. He is victorious. Now, one of the things that we see in the Psalms is the balance. We know the truth that God is transcendent, and that's what we're seeing here. But then there's the other truth that God is imminent. He is so near to us. It's a dilemma that Job could not figure out but it is what we often see written in the Psalms. The Psalms for us, I would call raw Christian living, unedited journal notes for all of us to understand that we're not the only ones going through this. And we see the transcendence of God, but we always see also the eminence of God, that he is near to us, that he is a tender-hearted father. Yes, he's a victorious warrior, but he is a good shepherd who keeps his promises and cares for his people. And so God is king. 
He rules. And so a few questions I have for you. If God is king, if he's ruling above all, if he's the only one and there's none like him, how is your peace and comfort doing this morning? How is your fear and awe of him? One that I like to personally ask often to myself and my wife, how much are you trusting and relying on him if he really is king and he's ruling? Knowing that none of his purposes can be thwarted, that he rules above all, do we confide in that as his people, that he has chosen for himself? Who we understand God to be will determine how we live out our lives. And this is why it is so important for us to understand the person of God. As the psalmist continues, the sons of Korah, they share with us the work of God or the greatness of God. And this is our third point today. Remember what he has done. So we understand that remembrance is foundational to worship. We understand that to, uh, we first need to remember the person of God, which is his goodness, but we also need to remember what he has done and is doing. So we're speaking about the greatness of God. Now, the reason why I wrote what he has done and is doing, because in verse 3 and 4 is the past. What he has done in verses 3 and 4, he subdued the people. He chose the heritage. But if we look to verse 8, it says, God reigns, present tense, and God sits on his holy throne. And so four things I want us to see that the king is doing. Four things. As king, he wins the battles. In verse 3, we read, he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. It's a way of speaking of the defeat of the Canaanites, the defeat of the Assyrians, Yahweh himself, right? It doesn't say that Israel accomplished this. And this is why the first battle that Israel won when they came into the land of Canaan was not won by the people of Israel, but it was won by God because they had to go around the city walls seven times and on the last day seven times so that they would always remember that it was God who brought them deliverance. And God was the one who was victorious. And therefore, it is he subdued the peoples under us. Not our work, not our strength, not our mentality, not our talents, not our greatness, but the greatness of God. He is the one who did it because he is Lord of all. The peoples are the same as the nations, referring to the various Gentile groups. He subdued peoples and nations under our feet. So as king, we are reminded that a God wins the battles. Yes, earthly kings may win the wars, but ultimately Christ reigns. And all the things that are going on today through the wars, and even in the past hundred years, yes, some have won, but Christ ultimately is the one who rules over all. As king, he also directs his people. In verse 4, he chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Heritage refers to the land of Canaan. He is the one who gave it. In other words, the people are glad because he's the one who chose our heritage. And the second half of verse 4 says the pride of Jacob whom he loves. And the question is, what does this mean? So we looked, I just looked up a different translation, and it says that his people are proud to own the land. And he loves them, right? The idea is they're proud that he is their king, that he has acquired something for them. They're happy to be under his rulership. They're not grumbling. He gave them a heritage. They're not saying, Lord, I don't know if I want that right now. 
They're trusting him. They're submitting to him because he is king. He has chosen our country for us, and we're proud. We, the people of Jacob, whom God loves. And so God directs his people. Not only does he win the battles, but after he wins the battles, he then directs his people where he would want them to go. And this is what we see in the history of Israel's life. Third, what we see is that as king, he also reigns. He reigns and he sits on his holy throne. In verse 8, we read it. God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. And verse 9 gives us even more clarity. The princes of the people gathered, right? They're princes, they're not kings. Maybe the author was trying to show something about who is really the king and who are the princes. But it's the princes of the people, the rulers of nations, they're the presidents, the prime ministers, and the dictators. Those who are ruling over the Gentile nations. And so... Those are the princes of the people. God rules over them because God sits on his holy throne. There's only one throne, and God sits on it, and he, it is holy. The shields are of the earth, as we continue reading, is just another explanation of speaking about the princes, the people, the rulers. The shields of the earth belong to God is this idea that the reason why kings were instituted and given to the people is that they would protect the people. They would rule in such a way that it would benefit the people. And there's only a very minor group that we read in the history of the people of Israel that did so and did it well. Many, they ruled for their own gain. But it says here, the shields of God, the earth, the princes and rulers, they belong to him. It's comforting knowing that what is happening today is God ruling over it all, over Russia and Ukraine. It's comforting knowing what has happened in the World War I and World War II, in the Vietnam War and any other wars that have happened recently, that God is ruling over the princes of the people. This psalm is to give us great faith and encouragement in what God is doing. It's to solidify us so we do not waver when we hear wars and rumors of wars. There is one thing for certain is that God is still fulfilling his plan. God had a plan in all of history to bring a people to himself. Before the foundation of the world, a lamb was going to be slain. And we read that this plan started unfolding in just the third chapter of the Bible. When the serpent was going to bite the heel, but he would crush the serpent's head, speaking of Christ. And then in chapter 12 in Genesis, we read that through Abraham, there's going to come a seed who is going to bless the nations. And people are waiting for the seed. Who's going to be that ultimate deliverer? Is it going to be Moses? Is it going to be David? The seed that's going to bless the nation, Paul ties it in in Galatians 4. That seed is Christ. God is fulfilling his plan to bless the nations. And we see that here. Look at with me in verse 9. God is already working that. Yes, we are Gentiles grafted in to the olive tree root with the Jews. But here it is in verse 9. The princes of the people gathered, the Gentiles gather, as the people of the God of Abraham. God is drawing nations to himself, using Israel as a light for the nations so that people would look to Israel, worship, the Israelites would be worshiping the Lord, and they would see how life is supposed to be lived properly. This is why God gave Israel 
all these rules and laws because they were a set-apart nation. And so we see here that this is what God is doing. He is fulfilling his plan and purpose. The defeat of the Assyrians is the continuation of this plan. The prophet announced this in Isaiah chapter 2. So I want to read it to you while you listen. Isaiah writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations, all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. The Gentile leaders representing their people will come and they'll give their allegiance and their praise to Jesus Christ. So Zechariah says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. You see, if the psalmist was writing the psalm today, he would, in the group of the peoples and the nations, he would include the United States, Ukraine, the UK, Germany, Philippines, Vietnam, Spain, Japan, all of these countries are called to worship the Lord. And then all of the peoples that are ethnic groups in each of the countries, like today in America, we have many ethnic groups. All of the nations and all of the peoples are going to come and they're going to worship Christ as king. And this is what the psalmist is looking forward to. We know that Christ is the ultimate king. We see that he is the fulfillment of the covenant given to David. In 2 Samuel, we read that a king is going to sit on the throne and he's going to rule forever. And David is wondering, is this going to be my descendants? Is this going to be someone down the future? Who is going to be the king that's going to sit on the, on the throne and rule forever? And centuries pass. And 400 years of quiet come. Then the New Testament appears and Christ is born as that king. He came down and conquered his enemies and then went up in great glory on his throne. Says the idea here, God has gone up with a shout. He has conquered victoriously. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about this. When it says that he gave us, gave us gifts, is that, let me just read it and then we'll explain it a bit. It says, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So the question is, Paul, what are you trying to say in this chapter 4 about spiritual gifts in the church and how it's supposed to unite the body? What does this have to do with anything? And the thing is that the quote here, he ascended on high and led a host of captives, is quoted in Psalm 68 of David's victory. And Paul quotes that psalm to describe the victory of Christ. He who ascended is one who also first descended from heaven. But when he ascended, he ascended as a victorious one, as the victorious one. He ascended as the great conqueror, the king. From a human viewpoint, the crucifixion was a great defeat and tragedy. But from God's viewpoint, Jesus won the victory over the world and the devil. He satisfied the claims of God's holy law so that we as sinners could be saved. 
And then he ascended to heaven, far above every enemy, and he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, as Hebrews reminds us. Revelation describes him as the king of kings and lord of lords, and he is sitting on his throne. And I want you to hear these comforting words found in Revelation 21 of Christ as king. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And so ultimately, we praise because he reigns. Yes, he has conquered sin and death, but he continues to reign today. He reigns over the nation, sits on his holy throne. Throughout history, God has been fashioning people for himself. We're going to love and obey him. Who will express and nourish this through corporate and personal life. And we, as God's children, have been grafted into this olive tree. We can join the voices of the people of Israel because of the continuing work and redemption of God that has come to the fulfillment in Christ. And so this morning, I'm calling you to remember the goodness, which is the person of God, and the greatness, which is the work of God, for overflowing worship. Now, a few concluding thoughts. I'm going to close this morning the way that Pastor Rod closes, so you are familiar with it. A few concluding thoughts. The first, and this give me three, three points. So the one, first one is, how is our worship? All right, three questions. How is our worship? In the midst of all that's happening in the world, things that are happening in the church, with heresy, churches straying away, false teaching, and we're wondering, God, what is happening? And things that are happening in our own life, how is our worship? You see, worship doesn't necessarily flow out of a life that is perfect and well and all the circumstances line up. We read the Psalms and worship comes out of a place of need. Out of a place says that cries out, Lord, I need you. Will you deliver me? But I will still continue to praise and worship you no matter what my circumstances. And so how is our worship? The psalmist says, clap your hands, all peoples, shout to God. Praise him, sing praises, sing praises, sing praises with a psalm. And so are we trusting him? Are we clapping, shouting, rejoicing, trusting that he is ruling sovereign over all? Do we have a sense of childlike trust? When it seems like, Lord, where is this leading to? Where is this heading? I can't figure it out, but I know that you can. You see, our children never second-guess us. We could tell them that we're flying to Europe tomorrow, and they'll be like, yes, we're so excited. They don't know. They just have this childlike trust. You could tell them you're going to be taking them to Six Flags, and they'll trust you. You could be telling them that you're going to buy them the most expensive gift that they wanted to, which you can't afford, and they'll still trust you. But you see, unlike us who can make promises and at times not fulfill them, God always fulfills his promises. And as adults living in our life, we know God is sovereign, but at times we're trying to figure it out, Lord, okay, how is this supposed to fit with that? And why did this happen when it did? And why didn't it happen after that? And God says, just trust me. Am I not king? Do I not rule over all nations and all peoples? And are you not my child and I love you so much that I'll orchestrate everything in your life to work together for your good because you do love me? God is teaching us to seek him with a whole heart, 
So tell him the truth and tell him everything to reveal to him our doubts, our faith, our victories and failures. We can trust him because he is king. And so if Christ has triumphed over the greatest enemy, which is Satan's sin and death, will he not help you in your current life? And so how is your worship? Are you waiting for things to pan out until you can really say, Lord, I praise you? Or are you just praising him in all of life, no matter what the circumstances? So how is our worship? Secondly, what is worship? I wanted to leave this to the end. What is, what is worship? Is it just singing songs? Is it just sitting under the word? Is it when the music is right? Is it when the songs are the ones that I want to sing? What is worship? See, I, I love this definition that I learned, learned in seminary from one of my professors. Worship is beginning with remembrance, which is, we already spoke about. We remember who God is and what he has done. It begins with that. It begins nowhere else. Because if we were to backtrack in our life, the moments when things have gotten a little bit, we would say, spiritually under the weather, we're not doing so well, we can always pinpoint it back to a time where there were other things that began to take our time, talents, and energy. Things that would draw us away from the glory of Christ, which then causes us to forget slowly and causes us to be in a place where we're not overflowing in worship. So remembering the person and work of God leads us to then submission, submitting to the Lordship of Christ. So when you remember who Christ is, as we read here in the Psalm and in the New Testament, the question I have for you is how do you not submit to Christ, right? How do you not submit to Christ and say, Lord, this is how you built the church. I will follow under your guidance. How do you not submit to him in family life, how he has orchestrated? How do you not just submit to him in general? So you submit to the Lordship of Christ so that it would then lead to, to spirit-empowered service for the glory of Christ. So we remember, we submit, which leads us to serve. And the expression of service we see is in, different, is in two ways, in personal life and in ministry life. Now this was supposed to be on a PowerPoint, but I couldn't figure out how to get it in there. So you guys just follow, follow with me, okay? So remember, submit, serve, and that's visible in, in personal and ministry life. So the service that you are, live, are, are serving in, it could be in different capacities in church, in the music ministry, in preaching and teaching, in body life, and encouraging people when you come to uh, home groups, in missions, in different ways. You see, worship is a lifestyle. Worship is not something that we do at a certain location or place. It is something that we live out. It is because we remember, Lord, you are king. I will submit to you. And now I want to serve you. Well, there is someone here who is in need of counseling. I am willing to share what you have been teaching me through your word to encourage this brother. That is worship. It's a life. And so if it begins with remembering, do we work to remember? It's a work to meditate. How many of you remember what you read in your Bible yesterday morning? We remember it for the day. We say it's the daily manna. Amen, I agree. It's the daily manna, but at the same time, we are to meditate, to ponder, to lay it onto our hearts, right? It's, it's a bit more work to meditate than it is to simply read. 
And so to remember what God has done, it means to, we maybe need to memorize it. We need to constantly listen throughout the day who God is and what he is doing, which causes us to submit and then serve the body and serve Christ through missions, preaching, teaching, music, anything else. And so the last point is, the concluding thought is, why do we worship? Why do we worship? Like, why is this so important? Why is it important that we remember, submit, and then serve? As the psalmist reminds us, the princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. As I already mentioned, the, the goal of the people of Israel was to show the surrounding nations God and His glory and His purposes. And so we worship because we want other people around to join in the worship of God. Oftentimes, Psalms are calling people to worship, yes, the people of the Lord, but also they're calling the nations to worship. They're saying, nations, come, come look into what God is doing. Look how beautiful He created all things. And so we worship because we want the Great Commission to continue. We want to be useful in the Lord's hands. And it's because of this very simple thing. You already are praising something. You see, we praise what we prize. And the thing that you talk about most often is typically what you prize because then you're praising it. You're sharing it with others because, as C.S. Lewis says, we praise what we prize because the praise not merely expresses our joy, but the praise completes the enjoyment. If I go take a ride down Highway 1, Half Moon Bay, and I park my car and I come out and I take a wonderful hike on the rolling hills and I see the ocean and the waves crashing and then the sun setting, I'm going to say, that was so amazing. You should, you should try that next weekend, <laughs> right? I want you to experience because I, that's, that was, I'm praising it, but I want you to experience that praise. It's like when you call your friends to move on from Android to iPhone and you say, come on, you can make that transition. And you're praising all these features. But this is what we do in our life. We want other people to enjoy it as well. And so when God is the center of our worship and we're praising him, because we're prizing him, then we're speaking about him. We would want people to enjoy the same things that we love, and therefore worship of God, our lifestyle, is important. Because our valuing God is one of the channels that God is building his kingdom. We can't share what we're not satisfied in. We can't share what we don't find joy in. When we prize and adore and treasure Christ, he becomes what we speak about, because then he becomes the object of our time, our talents, and our treasures. Remember the goodness and the greatness of God for overflowing worship. May the Lord help us to do this for his glory's sake. Amen. Let me pray. Father, this morning, how can we not stand in awe of you? Really, we go to sleep at night and wake up and everything is still running. There's billions of sea creatures in the ocean just a half hour away from us, and you are sustaining all of them. And you take care of all of them. You are worthy of worship. You are great, you are majestic. Not only that you create all things and you're Lord of creation, but you're Lord of salvation. And you can take a dead man and bring him to life. You can take a blind man and give him eyes to see the glory of Christ. 
and we thank you that you have done that in our life. May you, Lord, work in us so that we would continually remember what you have done, that we may submit to you, and that we may serve you, Lord, and your people for your glory's sake. Amen.